Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Hi, friends, and welcome to the Papaya Podcast. I'm your hostess, trying her mostess, Sarah Nicole, and each week I'm going to be dishing out some sweetness mixed in with some seeds of wisdom or something like that. So get ready to get inspired, get candid, get real, because we are all in this digital space together. Hey, good morning, good afternoon, whenever you are listening to this. Today is pretty exciting because today we're getting free therapy. (laughs) I'm sitting down with Mind Online Therapy host, Ashley. Okay, introduce yourself. I'm Ashley Mariani. Oh, that's a nice last name. Is that your last name? Mariani, yeah. Wow, it's actually nice. It's Italian. Oh, okay, yeah. That sounds nice. Okay, (laughs) go on, go on, go on. Um, So yeah, my Instagram page is at Mind Online Therapy. Um, But my my business is Mind Online. And I am a perinatal mental health and couples therapist. Um, And I really like working with couples in their post-baby journey, pre-baby journey too, but post-baby journey is pretty fun as well. Um, Yeah. That's amazing. Do you find that it's a growing subject that people are actually starting to tap into and care about? I I feel like personally, when I was in the postpartum stages of life, which was again, like 13 years ago when it started for me, is a very isolating experience. There wasn't a ton of information out there in terms of like helping you through it. Is that a new thing or do I, was I just not paying attention? No, I think it, I think that with the rise of social media, we have access to, um, other people's experiences now, just like on any topic. So people are starting to talk about, you know, this is my experience. I'm really suffering. I feel isolated. And I know that there are, you know, prenatal groups and baby mama yoga and things like that, which are all in person and all great. But if you are someone that's, you know, isolated and feeling alone, that's the last thing that you feel like doing is getting up, getting dressed and impression managing to a bunch of other moms, right? Yeah. I love that you call it impressive managing. That's so funny. Um, It's so true though. When you think about the days that you need the most help, they're usually the days that you don't want to get up out of bed. So you actually provide not only in office, but online therapy. How does that work? I essentially became the therapist that I needed in my own postpartum journey. So really, I can lived, you share that? Like, yeah. what is your postpartum journey? So, um, when I had my son, so I'm a mom of a two and a half year old boy, 
And when I had him, I lived in an extremely rural community in Eastern Ontario. Okay. We were like 45 minutes from Montreal and I don't speak French and we were like 90 minutes from Ottawa and the thought of driving to either one of those places to get therapy because you have to remember as a therapist in that community, I couldn't even like use my colleagues right. for therapy. Right, of course. Yeah. So um, I had to essentially become the person that I needed and I needed online support because um I just was limited in terms of who I could access. I mean, I didn't even have a car when I was like a stay-at-home mom for 10 years. Like we were a single car family. So, I mean, I can imagine that there's a lot of families in that same level of sacrifice when it comes to, you know, somebody who chooses to stay at home as a parent and then, or has to stay home as Mm -hmm. a parent, or even in that first year of maternity leave, if you're not in Canada, we get up to 18 months, but 12 months paid. So we have a lot more time at home, but it also does restrict your income in a sense. I think we get up to 55%. Some employment tops that up a little bit more, but usually it is a cut to your lifestyle, mm-hmm. regardless of how you look for after it. Like on top of that, you have children to take care of that are very, very expensive as well. Um, there's a lot of circumstances that you can't always look into, especially when there's families who didn't anticipate not breastfeeding a child and then they come into formula costs and all these different things. Having an extra car or having the childcare or the ability to leave your home, I'm assuming, is not an uncommon problem for a lot of people. No, no, not at all. And like I, I've, I've helped clients where um, even if they do have another vehicle, they've just kind of taken it off the road for the time period because it is an extra cost, right? Right. And even thinking about if you if you want to do the therapy thing, um, do you bring your baby or do you find childcare that cost? Right. And if if you don't have a family member to do it, um, what about gas to get to an appointment? What about parking once yeah. you get there? Or so, even just the anxiety. I had really bad anxiety in my postpartum and I went to a doctor and I said like, I'm really struggling driving in a car. I had a really hard time just even being in a car with my child in it. Suddenly my anxiety of driving was like through the roof. So even just the idea of getting into a car. Now at that time, his suggestion for me was quit breastfeeding and go on to this like anti-anxiety medicine. And I, I didn't, not that I have anything against those medicines, but it felt like a bandage solution to what I knew was a bigger issue. Mm-hmm. I didn't have postpartum depression, but there was something going on there. And I had to kind of work through that. But it took me a long time before I ever actually saw actual therapy. And man, what a difference. Like it is completely different when you start like dealing with like root cause issues. And I think that for a lot of people it can pair well with, you know, with medicines or like supplements or whatever it is. I take supplements for anxiety now. Um, But yeah, like there's, there's a lot going on and not a lot of like, I think there's a lot of support in terms of like, you know, breastfeeding or there's a lot of support in how to identify different things about postpartum depression. And there's a lot there, but like, that's such a bigger overarching issue. It doesn't really deal with a lot of like the smaller little things that I think happen with women when they just had like literally pushed a giant child out of like their body. They grew one then pushed one out. Yeah. It's crazy. What do you find is like the most common things that people are coming to you for? So I do get, I do get a lot of people that are coming for what they suspect to be postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. And then, so in my intake process, there's, um, 
a bunch of questions that ask, have you been like formally diagnosed? And one thing that makes me so sad is that these new parents are in touch with so many professionals and nobody's screening them like not even their family doctors nobody really? yeah and it makes me really sad because so is postpartum depression actually more common than we expect and it just looks really different for a lot of people um it's it's fairly it's fairly common so we can kind of categorize them under the perinatal mood and anxiety disorder so oh PMAD. i've never even heard that yeah so um we can, it's kind of, we, sometimes when we hear the word postpartum depression, we are encompassing the postpartum rage, the postpartum anxiety, the postpartum OCD. And so um, a lot of, a lot of uh, providers, healthcare providers, um, either don't have the training, don't have the time, or are unfamiliar themselves and don't feel confident because it's like once they screen and then they get a result back, it's kind of like, what do I do with this information now? For sure. That makes so much sense. I want to pause just for a second because I think it's really important if you're somebody who's listening right now and you're like, this is not you know, connect with me. This is not kind of my journey, not my struggle. We're going to be talking about a bunch of other things as well, Mm -hmm. but I want people to like kind of listen and take this in because you never know in which point in life you're going to be a support system to somebody else. Um, whether it's a sister or a friend, or even it's something that you go through like five years from now, this is a great time to tap into an awareness of something that not a lot of people are always talking about unless you're tapped into those postpartum communities you're not really going to understand or even know the signs or being able to guide somebody potentially to going to therapy or knowing even the right things to say. Do you, Ashley, find that you sometimes help the support people as well? Mm, Yeah. So, and um, to go back to your original question, what people are coming through therapy most often for, um, usually they're coming in isolation, but after the assessment, I kind of start to put a little, uh, maybe some of the the pieces of the bigger picture together. And I realized that it's a family systems thing. Okay. So yes, you're coming here for um, what you suspect to be postpartum anxiety or whatever it may be. But I really think that if this is a safe relationship that your couple, your partner needs to be here with you. Right. And we need to work on this together because you can do all of the things in therapy and you can go home and you can practice all of the things. But sometimes that, um, that element of having a supportive partner who can either grow with you or support you the way you need support via what you talk about in therapy makes all the difference. Right. Right. So I really, I really think that regardless of what you're struggling from, if your relationship is a safe place then incorporating the couple to tackle the issue and not so looking at it from like an externalization perspective so the issue is the issue not the couple the issue so right. sarah you you aren't your you know postpartum anxiety or you aren't your ocd your ocd is over there it's externalized okay. and together as a couple we can tackle that Okay, so I want to ask the juicier things now. Let's Mm -hmm. talk about sex postpartum because this seems to be a huge thing. I remember it, but like vaguely, I feel like it's like a blacked out season in my mind. (laughs) But I still consider myself someone who's going through it because regardless of like vaginal injury and like that whole thing and the fact that you can't have sex for six weeks or there's also like an emotional part of it like our brains are functioning differently, even like way down the road. This was like huge for me, but like, 
being with somebody else who hadn't had like being a single mom and being with somebody who had never been with a mom before I had like major I don't know I don't know what it was like comparison issues Mm -hmm. a lot of like fear around like my body being in a postpartum state I'm guessing this is a common thing at least I freaking hope it is but I I mean when we talk about couples and support and like the postpartum journey sex has got to be a big part of that totally um so I don't know if there was a question in there I'm just like Just have at it. Yeah. So, I mean, this is this speaks to the silos of professionals. And my goal is to kind of begin to merge these silos into like one barn instead of each silo. So the silo of sex therapy and then the silo of couples therapy need to be merged together because you can't do couples therapy without doing sex therapy. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. So, um, yeah. So in terms of... Um, sex postpartum it doesn't necessarily get brought up in the first one to two sessions but Mm -hmm. eventually couples come out and um, when we start to discuss things like what are your love languages how do you feel most loved by your partner what are they doing that you know what 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 would they be doing for me to know that you were feeling loved in that moment right so most times with one partner um physical touch is one of them for sure and if we don't have the vocabulary or if we don't have um the comfortability to say you know I just need you to touch me Mm -hmm. I just need to feel closeness I need like I that I have that skin hunger um sometimes it comes out with sometimes it comes out by the partner saying things like you know we don't have sex enough um I don't feel like you love me Um, it becomes like a pressure yeah yeah that totally makes sense um it's funny though too because I think sometimes I remember after having kids like during the postpartum stage of course your body is sending the message like you don't need to have a baby right now yeah like no sex signals happening so my brain felt like I felt like my brain just like deleted the app that was sex like by gone we don't need you right now um but there's still like there's more to sex than just like the physical sensation of it. Mm-hmm. What do you find are, you know, we men obviously have it. They're told it's a bigger need for men. It's all about the men and all this stuff. And like they need that, that intimacy and stuff like that. But I, I feel like it's important for women too. But can you kind of speak to like the why and, and how it can be more than just kind of like this, like, pressure to kind of like fulfill somebody else's needs or to like basically just like quote unquote get off on it like there's more to it than that like you're talking about physical touch but I think sometimes it's hard for us when we feel like our brains deleted that app to Mm -hmm. understand why we should even be entertaining the idea of sex yeah and so when we think about it from like a hetero cisgender type um, dynamic with couples very stereotypically, um, men are often seen as the pursuers of sexual intercourse, right? And um, for that reason, we also stereotypically see the 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 birth the birth parent or the females kind of shutting down that avenue. Um, maybe because they're touched out, maybe because they're sleep deprived. But if we like all valid, oh yeah, like you're hundred percent allowed to just be like, no thanks, and move on. Of course, and it's kind of interesting when you start digging deeper into the couple. You know, what is this really about? Is this really about seeking attachment? Because now what we have is your partner who's devoting 
their entire day 24 7 entire night 24 7 to this entire body 24 7 to this little being and um is it that because you're feeling like a sense of disconnection or um, detachment from your partner so you're seeking attachment and you don't know that that's what you're doing so to engage with them physically you are you know asking for sex asking for closeness that way to kind of reinforce the attachment and then from um, the the birth parent or the mother's perspective it's kind of like my energy right now is going into the attachment of my baby. I want to make sure that um, my baby is securely attached to me, even if we don't consciously know this. Right. All of these things are ingrained into our brain. When a baby cries, we go to them. Yes. That's ingrained, right? And that is building a secure attachment with your baby. So this parent is off trying to build a healthy um, infant mental health, like healthy brain for the baby. This parent is kind of feeling on the outskirts and feeling detached. So a lot of the time, not a lot of the time, that's that's overgeneralizing, but sometimes what I see during this early period is uh, like affairs will happen because Mm -hmm. they're just looking for that emotional attachment. Yeah. Yeah, Something again. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's also so hard because I'm somebody who definitely, I used to just like deny this to the end degree. Like I didn't think that I needed physical touch, but now I understand that I really do. And I really benefit from it, but it's not something I identify as physical touch things. And I remember being in like right after delivering my first, I had like an episiotomy, like a ton of stitches. Then it got infected. It was a year of pain. Like I couldn't stand up for a period of time without feeling like I needed to sit down because like the blood was rushing and it was painful. And I didn't really have a lot of other people who experienced the same thing. I had a friend who, if she's listening to this, she totally knows who she is, got pregnant like right after giving birth. And I was like, you're having sex? Like what? Like I'm injured. Like there was so much I felt very alone in with that. But how would you suggest if you're somebody who needs physical touch, obviously there's different things we can do in the sexual realm, but like what are other ways that we can kind of like fulfill that intimacy goal Mm -hmm. or that need um, without sex? Because that's not potentially feasible for some people or they're in a single parenting situation. They're not really capable of going out on dates. We're seeing a rise in this now um, where women are kind of taking back that journey a little bit, either choosing single motherhood or it's a circumstantial thing that's happened. And, you know, sex isn't really an available thing for them. How would you suggest kind of coping or working through that quote unquote issue of needing intimacy and touch if that's not something in your physical world. Right. So in the couple dynamic, it's always important to engage with your partner in that conversation, like what feels like good touch to you and what what could replace, you know, I'm not really, I can't or I'm not interested or, you know, something's preventing me. There's a block from the, the sexual world mm-hmm. of touch. So how how can I best fill your needs or meet your needs that way? So I have clients who you know, they'll have a really vulnerable conversation with their partner and they'll say, you know what, when you, when I'm, you know, at the counter prepping dinner stuff and you just walk by and you kind of like run your fingers through my hair and you use your nails and you like scratch the back of my neck or, you know, you pat my bum. Like I just, I feel seen in that moment and I feel like, ah, and it's like a breath of saying like, 
I, they, they notice me, they love me, they aren't disgusted by me, I'm here. Yeah, and I think awareness around those moments too is so important. A lot of times we just like almost take for granted like that touch and stuff. I, I know for myself, like, of course, like I think sex is fantastic and it's a lovely addition to our lives. But I will say to this, like the most intimate touch for me is like first thing in the morning when I'm getting ready and my husband walks into the bathroom, goes pee behind me and then comes up when he's comes up and washes his hands when he's done. And then he leans over the back of me and kisses me on the neck. That is the most intimate moment of my day. It's not sex. Like sex is fantastic, but that is not the core of intimacy so there is a lot of like stress and importance on like you need to fulfill your man's needs you need to do this like you need to be having sex right again but potentially for some of us that's not exactly where intimacy is being rooted in and being able to tap into that and I think my husband's the same way I know he's not here to like answer for himself but like he it means so much to him to have somebody just like touch his back like that means the world to him. Like, I don't know that it would replace sex, but I know that it means enough that if I wasn't able to have sex and there have been times and like illness and stuff like that, that like, obviously we've had some like drier spells of it, but like rubbing his back is like everything. It means a lot to him. So I think that's so cool that you talk about like, you know, just kind of dealing in like that having, if you're in a couple situation dealing with that conversation and like being vulnerable with that person. I think it's hard because even though we've like literally given birth to a child together, sometimes it's difficult to still have those like converse. Like it's so weird. Like we can literally do all the things we can like practically poop in front of each other, but we can't really say like, I have a feeling or a need to like for you to just like touch me sometimes. Like it's a, it's a weird, different state of vulnerable. That's really difficult to tap into. Mm -hmm. And if it's not easy for you to initiate that conversation, when you, when you see it happening or when you feel it happening, it's really amazing just to reinforce it in that moment. So if you're like, I don't really feel like I can tell my partner to just like smack me on the bum type thing. When it does happen, Mm -hmm. it's it's great to turn around and be like, you know what, babe? Like, I feel so hot and I feel so beautiful when you do that. And yeah. thank you so much for just making me feel like on top of the world first thing in the morning. That's so nice. Okay. And so what about the single bombs? Yeah. So that's a fantastic question. Um, I'm a huge promoter of masturbation. I think masturbation. I love it. Giggling. <laughs> I think um, I love having these kinds of conversations. So my face is like lit up right now because I don't normally dive into this stuff all the time. Podcast is like a perfect place for me to yeah. do this. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> my undergrad was in sexuality, marriage and the family. So I did a lot of uh, I had a lot of opportunities to research sexuality. Um, one of my undergrad. So I, one of my undergrad presentations in my honors um I did a presentation on BDSM and I brought in three guest speakers from the community of BDSM. Really? Yeah. It like exists around here? Oh yeah, like fetlife.com. Oh my gosh. Definitely. Wow. But that's why I'm so, I mean, if you are a single parent um, and, and maybe as a single parent that just, you know, gave birth, you're still not like looking to 
sexualize your body in any way that's totally okay so if you have the means to go get massages that's an opportunity for people to touch you yeah I mean it's not necessarily a sexual way but no but it's still yeah it's still a physical touch it can still fulfill that need yeah definitely that's a good idea and if you have people in your life that you're comfortable with hugs Mm -hmm. you can contract this listen if we're gonna hug it's gonna be 10 second hug Mm -hmm. and then we're just gonna like feel each other's bodies melt and it's gonna be great and it's not sexual it's just kind of like Hey, sis, give me a hug. 10 second hug. I love you. Awesome. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's cool. Even like manicures and pedicures, anything like that. Sometimes like a nice little, yeah, your hair is a big one. I've heard that like, regardless of what that person is to you, there is like a level of intimacy that is reached. And that's why so many people divulge secrets to like their, to their hairstylist, because there's like this physical touch connection that happens, which is crazy. Okay. Next question. This is just my own. Um, postpartum bodies. This is a huge one. Um, obviously I being in the position I am get a lot of questions about it, but I don't feel like an expert in this whatsoever because it took me 10 years to even like have body acceptance in the changes that happened with my postpartum body. When I got stretch marks in my, I think they came around like week 18 of my first pregnancy. Like they were there, they were fiery red, they were painful as F. And I put the creams on. I did everything I could to prevent them. Didn't matter. Broke out in a rash from the creams. All the stretch marks came. They were really painful. I am not against like the stretch mark cream thing. Cause I'm like, if you can prevent those things, like please do. It didn't work for me. Very genetic um, for me. Uh, my mom has them as well as my aunt has them. Like it's, it's very common in our family. So it, it wasn't too much a surprise. But when I saw them and even like my sister at one point took a picture when my, when my belly was like first popping, I bawled my eyes out. I could not even get to the point of like, I mean, I was 20 when it happened, but it was a lot. It was a lot. Even like when I went and got maternity photos, I had them like airbrushed out the stretch mark thing was really crazy. And then like just all of the anxiety and fear around like what you're like, I remember taking a mirror to my vagina. I don't even think I ever did that before having a baby, but I definitely did it afterwards. And I was like, is this even okay? Like what is happening? I was so like, there's all of a sudden your body just becomes like, you never realized that you were sexualizing it before, but then all of a sudden you felt like you had desexualized it completely in the process of having a child. You feel so unworthy of intimacy. You struggle so much with like these new scars and this new shape and the fact that your hips rotated out and you can't wear these kind of jeans anymore. There's a lot that happens with a woman's body when she has a child. And some of us go through it a little bit more than others. But how would you, in your professional experience and everything you've listened, I'm sure you've heard like a million stories from women. What does it look like in the therapy world and how you how you help basically women kind of come through this postpartum body experience? Yeah, and it's interesting because it gets brought up a lot in the couple dynamic too because when we bring it back to oh, I'm like sure. worth. That's why we wear t-shirts in the bedroom. Yeah, and it's like scary. sex. I don't want to have sex with you because, you know, my belly that has not shrunken back to before baby right. gets in the way or my boobs because I'm breastfeeding are extremely engorged and they leak milk when I orgasm yep or something like that right yep um but I I find it really interesting and I um as a therapist we very we limit the amount of self-disclosure we do because it's about the client it's not about the therapist this is a great platform for me to say that you know once upon a time in a chapter of my life that was before baby I 
placed second in a fitness competition. So like my body was there. I had, I had my dream body and my husband and I found each other in that world. So we built a relationship that was based on fitness and Mm -hmm. based on aesthetics, based on leanness and um, being sexy because we were fit and lean and we could like deadlift a lot of weight and our were bodies. you ever really happy with your body even at that size no no okay. I, I, I just feel no. like that's always I no. love asking that question because no. everyone has that comparative point no. in their life and I was like were you happy with your body then no. and they're like oh wait no I was not no it was it's body dysmorphic disorder right of it's course. like you look in the mirror and you see something and 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 so having a baby I remember um taking a picture at you know 17 weeks pregnant and thinking like, oh, thank God I still have obliques. Like, thank the Don't Lord. even know what an oblique is. Yeah, like your side ab. Oh, right? okay. Yeah. I was so like. Never had one of those. <laughs> <laughs> I was so happy to still have that. And then I found myself limiting the progress pictures I was taking because I was so worried about people that were following me on social media or that knew me for being like this fit person were now going to be like, oh, she's let herself go. You know, that period of like yeah. people don't know she's pregnant yet. She just kind of yep. looks like she has a belly now. She's let herself go. Yeah. And I, I was angry at myself for thinking that like I work in mental health and here I am like struggling with this. But regardless of if you, you know, had that lifestyle or not, you, you still begin to feel uncomfortable in your own skin. Um, for some people, some people really embrace it, but it's this period of like sitting with the lack of comfort. And I think as a society in general, we all struggle with sitting with discomfort Mm-hmm. big time right we we're impulsive we want to do things immediately to ease our emotional pain to ease our physical pain it can't come soon enough so just kind of reflecting and sitting with this discomfort and and digging a little bit deeper and saying like what is this about do I feel a lack of worth is this you know stuff that's coming up from childhood you know did somebody in my family tell me I could never be anything if I wasn't thinner or smaller or had less body hair or less acne or whatever the case it may be right let alone like advertising and just like everything seems like it's a problem so there's constantly solutions that's one thing that I think is I especially if you were about to hit into a postpartum season or any type of like body change recognizing how marketable it is for a lot of brands um there is a lot who will basically manipulate your feelings and emotions around these things and they will profit from them. So even when I was like, when I was getting ready for my wedding last year, scrolling through Pinterest, so many different things of like how to lose weight for your wedding, juice detoxes for your wedding, this for your wedding. And I was like, what? Like I'm getting married. Like this is not about like my body being like perfect for one day. Like there's a whole lot of another life going on here. This is about the start of that. Then on top of that, I remember searching for stuff for my niece was born and I was looking at stuff on Pinterest and all of a sudden all this like postpartum ads, ads came back and they were talking about this and that. And it's funny because I think I lucked out with some of the people that I journeyed with through even like my weight loss after kids. Like a big one for me was Bikini Body Mommy who I've had on the podcast before. She's a champion of like the postpartum um 
just like transition because like she starts her workout program at the same point that other people are. So she does it like at six weeks postpartum, like once she gets the clear from her doctor and her body's at square one, she's not like all the way finished and then has this like perfect body. And then you make that your expectation. I think that as we're starting to open up on social media, especially, but seeing like the realities of it and now that's being glamorized. So people are just like, oh my gosh, like sit back, relax. Your body is not meant to necessarily like as quote unquote, we say bounce back. It's meant to bounce forward. Mm -hmm. There's an actual, like there's a change that has happened. There is a shift that has happened. Mm -hmm. And like we very quickly are like pressure cooked in our minds on like how to make that adjustment. And it is not easy at all. So you're coming from like this fitness background coming into like having this baby, huge amount of change. Mm -hmm. How did you deal with it? I was really lucky because my partner decided to venture down a route himself and actually ended up gaining a lot of weight. So in my head, I was like, okay, he's not the We're super in it together. Yeah. <laughs> he's it's not empathy the super way. Yeah, exactly. So um, I, I mean, I'm not going to deny that I did struggle. And, and looking back now, I probably struggled in isolation once again, and I, I didn't have to. Yeah. Um, but I definitely did. Um, that being said, my experience is not the same as everybody else's. And so I find that when clients come in who have who have struggled for their adolescence, for their young adulthood with their body image, and then come in postpartum, it's triggered a lot of stuff for them. Okay. A lot. Makes sense. Yeah. And so one way of working on it is kind of like the 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 neuroscience route right so if we talk about um neurons that wire together neurons that fire together wire together this idea of reinforcement so if we're constantly faced with messages in the media with messages on social media in commercials in magazines that you need to look this certain way if we're um mindful of the conversations that we're having um, with ourselves about our body um, and we can just kind of write those things down acknowledge that those are the conversations that are happening mm-hmm. and then mindfully replace those conversations with something positive um, for example um, one thing that we do in our house is we have a tiled shower and my son is really into playing with those crayons that you use in the shower so we have filled every tile in our shower with um, a positive statement or a positive affirmation so it'll say like I love my body my husband thinks that I'm amazing my wife is my greatest supporter Um, I have a million dollars in my bank like all of these amazing things that we hope to manifest in our mm-hmm. life. So if if we are showing our brain this new message on a regular basis, it's going to strengthen that neural connection and it's going to start pruning the the connections that aren't used. Okay. So the same way that, you know, in grade nine we took French. Yes. Um, could you speak French today? No. No. Absolutely not. No, exactly. Because I could say je ne sais pas, which means uh, that's pretty much what I did in French class, by the way. That is a life hack for anybody. (laughs) If you are ever in a language thing, just just say, I don't know, in that language. And then that you get away with every answer. (laughs) The teacher would call me out and I'd be like, je ne sais pas. Now my kids are in French immersion. They are like fully fluent and have conversations behind my back and they giggle, giggle, giggle. So, but yeah, back to the point. So you're right. Your your neural pathways have pruned that, that, um, neuro connection right that that 
that you at one point could speak French and now you can't because that no longer serves you today. It's not being reinforced every day. Of course. So if we are mindful about the conversations that we're having in our heads with ourselves about what our body looks like and our worth based on our appearance, then we can begin to slowly replace those statements with more positive statements that help us live the life that we want to live. Okay. These are like such great little tidbits. And I have to say, I definitely went on my Instagram stories and I let people ask questions themselves. And this is like very, we've actually talked about a lot of this, but oh, one thing that I'm going to ask, cause this is a big one. What would you suggest for somebody who has no sex drive after having a baby? Is there anything they can do? Is it a hormone thing? Mm. Is there a way that they can kind of like actually boost it? It's funny. Cause like, I didn't realize that actually having sex boosts your sex. It's yeah. almost like breast milk. Like when yeah. you're breastfeeding, like the more the baby wants, the more it provides it. Is that kind of true or is that just like personal experience? Cause I don't want to like, <laughs> first of all, let, let's go ahead and let you do your little disclaimer when it comes to giving advice on a podcast yes. let's, in case you guys didn't know. Yeah. So uh, my disclaimer is that these are, not necessarily me as your therapist giving your advi- giving you uh, suggestions. It's just kind of my professional lens on each topic. And um, I'm not wearing my registered social worker hat right yeah. now. <laughs> I'm wearing my, hi, I've done this, you know, nine years of post-secondary education and here I am. And I'm just kind of offering you some insight. Disclaimer. Awesome. Yeah. So when somebody doesn't have a sex drive after having a baby, yes. what can they be doing? So this kind of speaks to why I'm a huge promoter of collaborative connections and collaborative care and circles of care because I can't be everything to everyone, right? Mm -hmm. So I uh, work really closely with naturopathic doctors. Mm -hmm. Love them. Yes, amazing. And so if that comes up in therapy and we've done the whole assessments around like, okay, is your relationship safe? Is it a, and is it an abusive relationship in any capacity? No, all of those things are checked off. We're good to go. Um, then I kind of say, listen, I have a list of natural paths you can choose from. Um, these particular ones specialize in uh, female hormones or reproductive experiences. My suggestion to you is if you have benefits that are covering my services, chances are you have benefits that will cover a naturopath. So go book an appointment, get some blood work done, and then if you're able to sign a consent form, that will open up the doors for your naturopath and I to have a conversation around what the potential culprits could be. And if it is strictly hormones, amazing. If it's sleep deprivation, that's another thing. If it's not feeling securely attached to your partner then that's something that would be really awesome to talk about in therapy like what needs to happen during the day to feel like emotional foreplay essentially yeah I mean it's so crazy because I will like I haven't even fully shared this but like back a couple months ago I was noticing that my sex drive basically dropped to nothing now I'm somebody who also knows that like sex for me isn't about just having a drive for it and I very much like to choose it so it wasn't really impacting in our relationship in a big whole realm but I was very aware of the fact that I no longer was like thinking about it or seeking it and it was like just kind of like my sex drive was gone and through the process of like all these other things going on I did go to a naturopath who kind of specializes in like hormones and fertility and 
went and had this like whole gamut of tests done. I had to be really patient with it. And then it came back that like one of my hormones is off. Like my testosterone's very low. Um, and a lot of it was rooting around stress and stuff like that. But I was so glad that I actually went and not only just tried to be like, oh, I'm just going to do this. And like, I didn't take it into my own hands. And I realized that I mean, there was, I did have to put a little bit of money into it. We had coverage to a certain point, but it was the, the impact of being able to empower yourself with like some answers and took away a lot of the guilt. Like there was a lot of like, what is happening in myself that I no longer like am desiring sex. It makes you feel, I don't know, inadequate. Like, I don't know what the word is, but I mean, I think it's hard, especially when everyone's like, oh, your mid thirties is like your sexual peak. And I was just like, yeah, where did mine go? Like it's gone. I don't want to go through this again. I remember having this before and now I feel so empowered. I was like, it wasn't a me thing. It's not that I don't love my husband or I'm that I'm like crazy obsessed with him and attracted to him because I am. And now working through the issue feels so good. It makes me feel so much more confident that it's, you know, it's actually just like a circumstance of like something else going on inside of me. And now we can tackle that. So I, and I think that it's so lovely that, you know, the naturopathic world and like therapy world, like they can really hold hands and like help people through that because it's one thing to get a diagnosis and have this, you know, your tools that you're set with, but there's a lot of mental tools that go with it too. Like I said, even though my sex drive was low because of a circumstance of something going on in my body, the mental side of it and like coping with it was a totally different one as well. So I really love that you said that. Okay. This is like a good question. It doesn't really have to do with postpartum at all, but I think it's a really good question. What is your best advice for reconnecting after losing trust? You know, we're talking, we're in the age of like affairs being on the high social media. You know, I've read, I'm in a lot of like women's groups where they catch their husbands, like liking girls, Instagram pictures and all these like different levels of like, what is trust for some? And like when that's broken, it looks different in every single relationship. My husband and I are not, um, like we don't have a lot of handholding when it comes to like looking and checking into each other's things. Like we have a lot of trust there, but it also, I don't know, like if he liked a girl's picture on Instagram, that's to me not a broken trust where for some people it would be. Also, I'd be such a hypocrite because I follow a lot of people with beards for like, I have no reason. I just like them. Um, but what would your best advice for be with somebody like regardless of what that trust that's being broken, like how would you recover from that? So I think you touched on a really important piece. It's that define trust right for you as a person so and 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 be open to talking about what you need to feel that again secure attachment because that's what it goes back to right what needs to happen for you to feel like your partner sees you is there for you you are their primary no matter what right um but again, what like what you said what's trust for you what trust looks like for you isn't necessarily what trust looks like for me and for anybody else. And if something happened that kind of triggers past traumas for you, then that's a little bit more digging that you need to do on your own as well, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, and, and opening up conversation and, you know, what do you need to have happen to feel like the healing process can begin? Do you need an apology? Do you need accountability from their part? Do you need um, specific behaviors? And then can we talk about are those behaviors going to end up being controlling behaviors that will kind right. of lead into the abusive territory, right? Right. So, and that's really important to talk about because I've had clients come to me and say, you know, 
you know, this, my partner went out on a date, a coffee date with somebody else and didn't tell me about it. And then I, I found out. Um, so now I want him to delete all of his social media apps. He's not allowed on this. He's not allowed on that. And yeah, I'm like, you, can't, you start to bubble wrap them. Totally. And, and so then that this is, this becomes a bigger issue. So we need to like take a step back and we need to start having a conversation about the needs that were not being met, um, feelings that were coming up, feelings, feelings of disconnect, feelings of not being able to, to talk vulnerable vulnerably about emotions that were coming up so Mm -hmm. if you decided to go out on a coffee date with some other person and you didn't feel like you could trust your partner to approve that and trust you that it was just a casual um coffee date right then then this is a whole other can of worms that we have to open up right yeah and that's so funny because like you know being in meeting Shane when I was like already in my 30s and having a relationship with him I think we'd come through like a lot of like instances in the past where there's a lot of mistrust in relationships and a lot of like sometimes like controlling vibes so there is this kind of like dance between um you know, trusting your partner and then not having control over them either. And I think though those are like really important conversations because like for me, I had a lot of fear around like him ever being controlling and he had a lot of things around trust. So we have a lot of, we had to have a lot of conversations about like, what are we trusting each other with? What does that look like? What are we sharing? And like, he really had to express times that like, he's like, I am struggling because like, I trust you, but there's like this fear deep in me about like this or, and I'll be like, okay, great. Just like, as long as you don't start telling me and dictating like how I behave based on your fears, like it, when the trust isn't broken, it's hard to like, kind of put that on somebody too. Right. So I think it's, honestly comes down for me personally into those conversations and really being real about like where our fears are stemming from, especially if trust has been broken. Like, what does that look like moving forward? Can we move forward? You don't really want to go into an existence where you just, you know, control each other and you right. bubble wrap and you check into social media apps and like look into everything they're doing. Like that that's, that's not a relationship either. Yeah, no. you're right. It's stressful. It puts a lot of pressure on like both of you to kind of like perform in a way that like the other person will always be happy with. And sometimes that's hard. Of like, course. Um, okay, moving on from that. Okay, first of all, like 90% of these questions are about sex drive after kids or just like <laughs> not having a sex drive at all. So I, that's obviously a big thing, right? Um, I'm so glad we touched on that. Hopefully we answered a lot of people's questions there, but um, this one's a good one. What are your thoughts on masturbation and marriage? Well, that's a great well. question. <laughs> um, so for me, this again goes back to communicating with your partner. So if you are in a relationship where there has been, again, some trust issues around pornography use and masturbation. Mm-hmm. Um, masturbation could be very triggering for you. Um, it could be, again, a comparison thing. If you have, if you feel your body is not adequate or worthy of love and your partner is using pornography uh, as a means to reach arousal and orgasm, then you might feel like you're comparing your body to the bodies of the people that are... Which is not porn. real life. No. It's porn culture and it's difficult i have no desire to bleach my asshole so you know. no that is such a thing though it's called like the pink wink <laughs> I know. which i don't know in which point like a butthole is a wink but apparently that's like such a thing i know it's 
It's so funny. One time I was like, <laughs> like I, when I was like, I don't even know what age I was. I was really self-conscious about the dark color of like my armpits. So of course I was such a dummy and like go on like looking for like bleaching cream again, such a dummy. And it was all like asshole cream. And I was like, who's bleaching their buttholes? Like, this is so crazy. Again, the crazy expectations in which that society puts on. But I think it's an important thing to remind ourselves of when we're understanding why a lot of our rooted self-esteem issues come from. A lot of it is from the fact that like men are kind of like submerged in this porn culture society. So of course they have this like idea of what women look like. It's not realistic. Then women are seeing that that's what men are seeing. They start putting that expectation on themselves and then they're realizing I don't match up to that at all, nor is that reality, nor is that what sex looks or sounds like in our life at all. So we must be doing it wrong. I'm going to put on my shirt. I'm going to sit in the corner. I'm going to strip myself from that intimacy and like block delete, like no thanks. It's hard. And I think that that's like, I think it's important that if you are somebody who is going to have those conversations to like, yeah, come down to like root your, where the reality of it is, where the truth of it is. And knowing that like your partner might be struggling just as much in intimacy because of the results of like a porn culture thing. And some might have like a great mental health about it. Mm -hmm. And I think that that is like, it's a whole other conversation, such a different thing. But when it comes to masturbation, it can be a big issue for some couples. Like for some, that's like a break of trust. And for other, it's like, it's actually such an intimate thing. Yeah. And and I kind of want to go back to this idea of like controlling, right? Because we don't want to start telling people that they have to ask permission to masturbate because mm-hmm. you, you are, you know, you get to control your pleasure. And if masturbation is a mode of sexual or of, of stress release for you, then fantastic. And you shouldn't have to ask permission to touch for you to be able to touch your own body. Yeah. Right. But when it comes to like porn in a marriage, Mm -hmm. if that is not okay for you, Mm -hmm. do you think it's okay to ask your spouse? 1000%. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Cause I think there's a lot of confusion around that. Like when women are like, I'm struggling with the fact that like, I don't like porn. I don't agree with it. There's a lot of like human issues around it as well. It's not always ethical when you ask for it to not be a part of relationship. Mm -hmm that is something that we can totally honor. Yeah. Right. And, and what, how can we replace this? So for a lot of couples who, um, want to replace the use of porn and want to engage in that, uh, arousal and pleasure together, I always say, go to the bookstore or go on Amazon, find a book, like an erotic book that has a little bit more context to it. Um, you can use your imagination one of you read it out loud or you take turns reading it out loud that's such a good idea yeah that's actually such a good idea do you remember when like 50 shades was such a thing and like everyone was like husbands were buying it for their wives like oh my gosh like this is actually like literal I think that's because women are actually so stimulated by the mind it's not always like I always said that like it doesn't matter who I end up with in terms of looks it always mattered how much they made me laugh because that is my biggest turn on right like and it's so different for everybody okay here's another question maybe I don't know if you have like an answer for this but I'll ask it (laughs) um pelvic floor Oh, yeah. So I it's another one of those professions that I collaborate with. Okay. Because pelvic floor specialists are so like such an important piece in the sexual health realm and overall health realm as well. I mean, if you're experiencing pain um, in your pelvic region, pain during sex, that's not normal. 
Right. Uh, and so you need to connect with a pelvic floor specialist and you need to be uh, on a workout, Kegel workout routine mm -hmm. uh, or, or whatever routine that they assign you to that is going to start incorporating holistic wellness. So taking care of your pelvic floor, taking care of your vagina, taking care of your mind, taking care of your emotional well-being, everything needs to come together. And again, it's, it's, we can't work in silos. We have to come together and work. I love one. that. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. All right. This is another one. Would you suggest that somebody would go and get therapy in a couple situation Actually, you know what? Hold on. I'm going to ask this a little bit differently because I know that couples often go together in couples therapy. Do you find that it is more beneficial for couples to come together and talk about things or does it often root in like each individual's and should it, we, we, should we be waiting for a time in which things are actually at a pressure point or do you recommend for like, especially coming through a season of change or anything financially, like all these different things that might be going on, is it best to go alone or is it best to go as a couple and should we be seeking? it when a crisis happens or before so one thing I love about couples therapy is that the couple can come together for like the assessment period and okay. then if there's anything that stands out as being strictly an individual issue then I can take time to see each one of the couple individually for one or two sessions and then bring them back together as a couple because again it goes back to the systems and and the the idea that we are all connected so um in, in the addictions theories, people that are, are living with addictions or recovering from an addiction, they incorporate their support network around them. And so um, when you're struggling with one particular issue, it's good to have people in your corner supporting you. So again, you're not doing it alone. And also people understanding what role they play in you know, whatever issue this is that you're struggling with. It totally makes sense. And I understand the question and what they're asking, because basically if your relationship is going well, but mm -hmm. you know that there's things that are swept under the rug, there are some unresolved issues. Sometimes it can be scary to talk about something, not knowing what like bomb might explode yeah. during that. But in your experience, is it better to deal with the issues or sometimes is it okay to just move on from them? I guess it depends on how much you're thinking about them and how much they're taking up space in your life. Huh. Yeah, So true. If, if it's an issue that's being swept under the rug, but it's something that you're coming back to on a daily or weekly basis even, um, what better environment to bring it up than in therapy where it's a controlled environment where you, a uh, semi-controlled environment anyways, where you have a third party neutral perspective, where you have someone that's able to reflect and use their professional experience to um, make the conversation safer. And I think that's the key word is that therapy is meant to be safe. It's meant to be a safe space. So I do recommend couples coming to therapy when they think that things are great in their relationship because do you know how you got them to be great? Like, do you yeah. know what steps you took to, to get to a great place? Because if you don't, when things do fall apart because there are ebbs and flows in relationships, you won't know the steps to take to get it back to that place. Makes total sense. Um, I love that. I know it's so true because like sometimes we don't even identify why we're in a good place with somebody or like <laughs> Shane jokes that like it's because I like to talk about everything and I beat everything down like a like I will literally talk about everything forever because I came from a relationship where like I didn't feel comfortable like that. So once you have somebody in right out the gates, I was like, I have zero time 
to entertain the idea of dating somebody when I have three kids in tow, we're emotionally connected. I have no time to bullshit you and pretend like I love to go camping. I hate camping. (laughs) I mean, it's lovely outside, but I will much rather like I don't do well in it. It's not like my favorite thing to do. I can do a campfire. I can come home to running water. It is not my thing to go camping. He loves it. He goes like backcountry camping. But I was like in the beginning, I remember when he was like sharing all the stuff about camping and like part of me wanted to be like, yeah, I love it. But I was like, no, I can't bullshit you. Like this will come up later and you'll be like, why did you tell me I like you Mm -hmm. liked all this stuff? And like it wasn't really a thing. I had zero time and energy to be anything but myself and be completely authentic in that, even if it meant that it was something he didn't like. What it actually ended up doing for us and what I've learned along the along this time is like all that no bullshit just allowed us to like fast track what it was to get to know each other. There was no like, oh, pause. Wait, you don't like impression managing impression. Yeah, that's that. I'm using that. That is so good. Oh, I mean, it's so true. But like when I think about like back on like my biggest success points in terms of like I say this as humbly as possible in terms of like why Shane and I, I think did well. A lot of it came from just like my own self-awareness. I'm like, what do I want? Like stop making it about basically pitching myself for like a boyfriend and instead being like, no, like I have a lot to offer here. Like there's me, there's three kids. We are like the Costco pack family. (laughs) Like you get so much from this. Like what, how does this work for us too? And when I changed my perspective around what it was like to date and who I was and what I was offering, it completely changed my expectations in the relationship too, because I realized that it wasn't just about me like pitching myself. It was about like, Let's see what we have in common. We have like the most ridiculous things in common. And then we have other things that we're nothing alike on. But we're also like, like we're both extroverts. Like when we go out together, we're both opposite sides of the room talking to other people because we're both those people. So there's like a lot of complimentary things that we have and a lot of things that like don't work so well together. But I'm so grateful that we didn't do the bullshit at the beginning because that really changed the trajectory of our entire relationship. There was no real like surprises, you know? And it gives Shane something to be able to do on his own away from you. hundred percent. And it's always good. I can tell when he's like stressed in life and stuff. I'm like, maybe you should go camping. Like maybe you should go do that thing. And then it gives me time to like sit at home and watch Netflix and drink wine with my girlfriends. Like who cares? Like it is what it is. Okay. Um, another little question here. What are we at for time? Oh my gosh. I could talk to you forever. (laughs) Okay. This is a good one. Mm. I don't even know if you're going to be able to answer it. (laughs) Does everyone have a cheating gene and is monogamy normal? Oh, amazing. That's I think that comes down to theory. So before I came here today, I had met up with a friend um, who is currently uh, in a polyamorous relationship, is currently practicing polyamory. What does that mean? So he has his primary relationship with his, which, with, which is with his wife. Okay. And they've been together for 16 years. Okay. And their relationship was just fantastic at this fantastic point. And they had a conversation where they said, hey, what do you think about introducing a new partner? Or So the umbrella term is open, like there's an umbrella concept of open marriage. And then from there, an aspect of open marriage is polyamory. Um, And they were both on this page where they're like, you know what? We have a great relationship. Our communication is on point. So yeah, I'd like to see what happens. And they contracted with each other just verbally that if at any point their primary relationship was taking a dive because of these um, secondary tertiary relationships that they were having, that they would end those relationships and go back to point A and start working on their primary relationship again. 
So when I talk to him about it, he is very much from the standpoint of, um, no, we are not meant to be monogamous. We are meant to um, love lots of people just the same way as, you know, he says, I don't love my one child uh, more than I love my other child, I can love people equally, and those people. Fair, are... but you definitely have favorites based on behavior. <laughs> yeah. I'm not Just there saying. yet, but yeah. <laughs> um, and then from a theoretical lens of emotion focused therapy, uh, emotion focused therapy says that when we look for connections outside of our primary relationship, it's because our primary relationship isn't fulfilling the secure attachment we need. Yeah. I mean, so, it makes, yeah, so both kind of can ring true in yeah. a sense, like, it can be something that's ingrained in us that we do want to have, like, multi-tiered love and, like, lo- like love from other things, but it, I also think that it doesn't necessarily have to be, like, a sexual relationship, mm-hmm. but I think that's hard. Like, one thing that I really struggle with is that I get along with men very well, naturally with women a little bit better, but there seems to be, and I noticed it a lot, especially when I became, like, a single mom, it was no longer okay for me to have male friendships, and that shocked me because I was like, why? But it was because suddenly it was like I was a threat, and I never even thought of it that way Mm. and it was really honestly it was like a huge hard thing for me to digest thankfully like some of my best male friends are like my cousins so it's not actually a big deal but I realize now like there is a I actually really like male friendships but do you think that there's a way to healthily have male female relationships outside of your marriage non-sexual and or is it just like walking on like a dangerous water like will it always tip towards something else no I don't I I think that if you if your primary relationship is healthy Yes. And there's open communication and intentions are set up front and there's conversations around like this is my this is my friend Matt and we've been friends for a long time. This is the context of our relationship. Um, I respect him. He respects me. I would like you to meet him. I would Mm -hmm. like you to develop some kind of connection with him so you understand who he is and where he's at. Um, And I need you to trust me because if you don't trust, even if you don't trust him, if you're not letting me be friends with him, you need to be able to trust me. For sure. You need to be able to trust me that if he does do anything that's crossing the line or boundary, that I will react appropriately to honor the primary relationship. And what happens, like, there's a lot of loss of relationship, I think, in terms of those male-female relationships or... um, however they are when you're entering into a relationship that that now they're lost because you can no longer feel like you can pursue that like what happens when okay let's say for instance like you have a friend that you've either met during your when you're already in a primary relationship or somebody that before that primary relationship and it's always been like completely non-sexual what is the word for that uh platonic uh, platonic but the other person the primary the person that you're in a primary relationship with does have a problem does that become a control thing? Is it something you got to work through? Like at what point do you step away and say, I have to honor the primary relationship or like, no, this is controlling. I think that's really hard mm-hmm. to decipher like what the right answer there is. Yeah. And, and it, it all comes down to context, right? So um, has this friend done something to cause 
stress in the primary relationship? Has there been accusations of specific behavior that, you know, your partner is saying I'm not comfortable with, or I've heard that he does this, or I've heard that, you know, he is a wife stealer or whatever the case may be, right? Versus this is just my own insecurities from past relationships. And now I'm bringing my past experiences into this primary relationship, which is something that that person needs to work on themselves. Okay. So that all makes so much sense. Cause I think that, yeah, it's, I mean, it's one of those things that I've definitely had to learn about along the way, but a lot of times those fears are rooted in something else, or Mm -hmm. it's just that idea that like men and females cannot be friends together. But I, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just like a naive, I always feel like, am I just being a naive girl? And I think that like, I could legit just have like male friends and it's not an issue. Thankfully, Shane is like not the kind of person that really tells me too much of like what to do. But I also know that he has had some like past trust issues with like other relationships and it can come into play. And I think it's, I always just wonder like, do I get to kind of fight for that? Do I get to kind of like ask for those friendships to um, remain in play or is it something that you automatically have to honor the primary relationship? I think that any kind of friendship that was pre-existing or that happens during their relationship is an amazing opportunity for conversation and the word communication gets thrown around in relationships constantly, but does anybody actually know what communication looks like? And so I don't know. I just talk a lot. I expect (laughs) that that's the right thing to do. And so sitting down and saying, okay, let's kind of figure out which friendships are causing me tension, which friendships are causing me to feel uneasy. And let's start talking about these friendships and not talking about them in a finger pointing accusatory way saying like, this is what's coming up for me around this friend. And Mm -hmm. is and and then you as the individual with a friend can say something like, what do you need to what do you need from me in order to feel more secure or what do you need from this relationship in order to feel like trust can be increased type thing? That makes a ton of sense. And sometimes I think we don't even know the answer, which is maybe why somebody like you comes into play that can kind of like, you ask, you also have like such a therapy voice. Has anybody told you that? No, like I'm, I have like a headset on, so I'm listening to you. Can I be like a sex talk, (laughs) phone sex worker? Mm. I listened to this like podcast once and it was with like a brain psychologist and her voice was like this tiny little timid, like British voice. And she talked like this. And I was like, I could listen to you all day. Talk about my brain. Like it was so funny, but like you just have like... You have like a Morgan Freeman style voice, like not like in sound, but like one of those like, oh, yes, like narrate my life for me so I can understand. So how, okay, quickly touch on because we got to wrap this up. We might have to do a continuation of this sometime, but okay, explain how it works when you do online therapy. Mm. What does it look like if somebody is interested in like seeking that out? What are some like key pillars of things that they should be looking for? What can they expect? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Um, so I guess it first first and foremost, when it comes to any therapist, it's always great to do your research. Um, if you haven't already gone on Psychology Today, it's essentially a directory of therapists. Oh, cool! Yeah. So if you're if you plan on using benefits, first and foremost, check with your benefits to see if you have coverage for. Um, some people only have coverage for a psychologist. Okay. Some people only have coverage for a registered social worker and a psychologist. And then if you have a more liberal insurance plan, um, they're starting to get on board with coverage for psychotherapists. Okay which is fantastic. And kind of information around that, that a lot of people don't understand is that there are 
people who are registered psychotherapists. But if you're a clinical social worker, you are doing the act of psychotherapy. So I am a clinical social worker doing the act of psychotherapy. Amazing. Okay. Yes. I've never really understood why there's like so many yeah. different tiers of stuff. It's essentially which college and which background of degree that you have. Because um, a psychologist is somebody who can actually like prescribe medicine. Is that right? A psychologist can diagnose you. Can diagnose. Yeah. And so what you would do is more just like working through actual like problem solving yeah. type of thing. Yeah. And okay. I like to say that um, my, my work is very client centered. So Yes, diagnosis can be important for some people, but I don't want to base my work with a client on their diagnosis. I want to for see sure. them for who they are and I want to talk about their symptoms. I don't, you know, if you went to a doctor and they prescribed, they diagnosed you with postpartum anxiety, fantastic. That's wonderful. Your name isn't postpartum anxiety. It's not postpartum anxiety walking through the door. Your yeah. name is Sarah. I want to know what that word means to you and how it manifests in your life and where it's causing you problems. For sure. And I think that that's important because for a long time, like after I was diagnosed with like post-traumatic stress, it was like, I felt like that's who I was. Like yeah. that's all I was and it was going to be with me forever. And that I was just going to like live my days. as like, a, like what felt like a crazy person. And now I understand that that like was a part, mm -hmm. but is not me as a whole. Like yeah. I, I can actually have freedom beyond it having post-traumatic. And I think that because PTSD is often so mislabeled and we hear about it in the news when we hear about somebody who's come home from war and like they've killed themselves, they had post traumatic stress or there was a shooting and we hear about post-traumatic stress in the news like that we don't understand how it actually no. applies to like there's people who suffer from post-traumatic stress like after childbirth mm -hmm. there's so many different layers of like where it can stem from and what can cause it and yeah like we are so much more than that diagnosis so mm -hmm. I love that you kind of like move past just like that one type of word but if somebody's coming to you and they're yep. doing the online thing yep. is it FaceTime is it an email like yeah. what is it so there are lots of platforms and right now in this moment probably while this podcast podcast will be airing. I will be using um, a platform where the terminal is based in Toronto. So everything is healthcare compliant and approved by mm -hmm. um, the Privacy Act, which is really important. Love so it. the reason why I don't use Skype or why I don't use um, Facebook Messenger or Facebook video or whatever it is, um, is because there are no privacy um, there's no confidentiality in terms of privacy with those things. So those oh. platforms own the conversations. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you're using a different hub for that. Yes. So is it video conversation or is it phone conversation? Is it yeah. comfort? So um, I always give the option of if somebody needs to kind of feel it out, do they want a 15 minute free phone console okay. to just kind of get an idea of who I am and even like the sound of yeah. my voice like you have to see if that like clicks right? totally yeah and that's why I like putting my face on my social media because it gives the people an opportunity to reduce their anxieties around what does this person look like mm -hmm. what does their voice sound like what are the expectations and then from there we discuss um, would you prefer instant messaging would you prefer a week of back and forth kind of like email style messaging uh, would you prefer video or are you close enough to do an in-office session? Because that's, that's really cool. So it's actually like it can actually work around like your lifestyle and yeah. stuff as well. It's mm -hmm. completely accessible. Basically, even if you're stuck at home with all the kids around you, like yep. at your feet, breastfeeding doesn't matter. Yep. Not, not at your feet, breastfeeding. But at your feet, <laughs> Let's hope your boobs aren't at your pause, feet, but you never know. And then also maybe breastfeeding. Um, 
I love that. Thank you so much for coming into my home. You brought me a coffee. It was so nice (laughs) of you. I'm really glad we did this because we got to ask some like really cool questions. Yeah. Um, Let's remind everybody where we can find you. Yes. So uh, www.mindonline.ca. My email is contact at mindonline.ca. My Instagram is at mindonlinetherapy. My Facebook is mind online mental wellness and my new podcast that i'm joining with um a doula to start up will be called social detox detox spelled d-e-t-a-l-k-s oh i love that Mm -hmm. yeah that's really cool well congratulations that's like a lot of things going on i think you have so much to offer and i'm so excited for people to listen to this thank you and kind of get to dive in i hope that if you enjoyed this today that you're going to share it with your friends if this isn't conversations that maybe applied to you i hope you share it with somebody that does and thank you for participating and asking your questions in our little mini therapy session that we did here today (laughs) and uh yeah stay tuned for next week well friends thank you so much for tuning in and listening to today's episode for more information on this episode check out the show notes or find us on instagram at the papaya podcast and if you loved what you just listened to or know somebody who would please share it simply screenshot today's episode in the podcast app and share it to your instagram stories and don't forget to tag us Last but not least, if you'd like to lend your personal support to the podcast, take a moment and leave a review on iTunes. We would be oh so grateful. Tune in next week for a fresh new episode of the Papaya Podcast, and we'll see you then.